while everyone can sort of, you know, look at the pedestal and they're like, look, like they did it. I want that. Right. What they miss is like, there's like so much stuff of like, it doesn't work and we're going to die and I'm going to lose all my money and I'm going to lose all my investor money and my parents put money into this or whatever it is, you know, it's like my, you know, my friends put money into this or I'm going to lose everything. There's sort of like that moment for like 10 years. And then at some point, like a few things break and then it's like, oh, it's working product market fit. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy Cashew, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Gary Tan. We've been internet friends for many, many years, but finally got to catch up. And hot damn, Gary is so amazing. He was early at Palantir, sold a company to Twitter, was a partner at Y Combinator. Now he runs a really successful venture fund that's done companies like Coinbase and Instacart. He also has one of my favorite YouTube channels, youtube.com slash Gary with two R's, Tan, to help people on their startup journeys. He could seriously charge a lot of money for what he is giving out, but for some stupid reason, he wants to help the world for free. If you ever want to learn about building billion-dollar startups, chill vibes, and more, you'll love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, the early stories of billion-dollar companies. Dose, finding your edge in business. And three, how Instacart almost didn't get funded. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. We put out two to three juicy business videos to help you on your journey. Also, a special pre-show shout-out to listener Cyrus789. Sounds like an AIM screen name. Said, Noah, it takes me back to cow when your voice fills my car. I look forward each week to your case studies and interviews. I appreciate you, Cyrus. Thanks, man. That means a lot. If you want me to shout you out in a future episode, you gorgeous people, leave a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. I check every single one of them. My only question, Gary, is like, why two R's? Oh, I guess I'm named after a fort in Canada. Oh, really? In Winnipeg. That's kind of random. Huh? How did you choose that? Uh, they both immigrants from uh, Singapore and Burma, and uh, they met at University of Manitoba in Canada. Just something that like all this can just happen. Like we don't like the yeah. tech stuff. Yeah. The funniest thing is like, I'm a venture capitalist, but I started a lifestyle business. Like one of my side projects is like Post Haven and it like charges people five bucks a month. And I wrote it into my will. <laughs> you wrote Post Haven into your will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there will be a foundation for it if anything happens to me before I can get back to working on it. So, do you mind sharing what else is in your will? I did my will two weeks ago, so I'm kind of uh, I'm fascinated with wills. Yeah, it's the standard stuff, you know. Take care of your fam, right? So the only weird thing is probably uh, taking care of this website that I said I would keep online forever. So in your will, it's like, hey, we're gonna put money so that the site stays up. Yeah, I like that. It was, it's kind of interesting. Did it surprise you when you did your will? Because for me, it was like, man where's this all going to go? And how do I enjoy it now? And, you know, just some interesting mortality questions. Yeah, it definitely puts you in a, uh, the, the mode of what does it all mean, doesn't it? It also was like, I don't want my brother getting all this money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't have a kid or a wife yet. And my parents don't need any money. And I was, basically was trying to think like, what's the most fun things I could do to, to spend the money? That's a good way to think about it, really. Oh, dude, I have, so I have about 25,000 going to a party at my grave. Uh, you're invited. Oh, awesome! You could do a you could do a YouTube clip there. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is like let's hope it doesn't need to happen, right? Like, there's sort of an untimely aspect of it. Like, you know, tomorrow is not a given, and if that's true, then here's where it goes. But you know, I think we'd all rather have Noah around for as long as humanly possible. I like to be here 
but in the past, like maybe five years, I've kind of been in the mindset. I don't think that we have to die. Like not like, oh, like it'll live on YouTube and YouTube will be around. But uh, I was like, well, if someone figures it out, like the show Upload, have you, have you seen this mm-hmm. show? <laughs> like uh, brain scanning and things like that. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know. I, the flip side of that, though, was I, I talked to my buddy yesterday and I was like, how would you be living if like you only had two more years to live? Because like one month is like really short. And then 50 years is, is hard, I think, for us to, to grasp the time. But it's like in two years, the asteroid is going to take us all out. So how do we live, <laughs> how do we live the next two years? Totally. Well, those are different questions because it's like, what would you do if like you knew humanity was going to be gone? Yeah, yeah that's what's going to happen. So I, I'm curious how you would think about that. In two years, it's like the asteroid's going to come. We're all extinct. Well, we'd probably start partying. <laughs> that's probably the right thing to do. It's definitely the right. <laughs> Suck the marrow out of life while you can because, you know, there is no tomorrow, right? Whereas like the rest of it is we live in the past, we live in the present, and we live in the future. And it's hard to tell the difference. And that's why we meditate. That's interesting. Did you did you think about that today? Or how do you think about that? Oh, no. I mean, that's all Eckhart Tolle. That's all his stuff. It's uh, really about living right, you know, right now in the present. And then a lot of the pain that we experience in life is either reliving past trauma or pre-simulating the bad things that might happen to us so that we can make better decisions right now. But if you spend too much time in the past and too much time in the future, that's why people walk around with just like having a bad time, being anxious, being worried, you know, not being their best self. And so Eckhart Tolle came along and said, I mean, this is sort of many different meditation traditions. You know, the core of yoga is a lot about this too. It's like be in the now, be in your body, be present. And that's actually just a better way to live. I think I've heard that for many years and only this year did I understand what people meant by like be here now. Mm -hmm. Because I think I'm curious, especially you're like, oh, I missed this, you know, Riverside deal or I got this deal. Like yesterday we had our best month in company history at AppSumo and like we put out a YouTube video and it did really well. So yesterday was like a title of today. It's like a calm ocean. And I'm actually, I was feeling a little lower this morning. I'm like, there's no party today. I guess it was interesting to kind of sit with my feelings for a bit. Like just noticing like, okay, right now today, like there isn't any crazy stuff going on. Mine is coming and hanging out with you. I was like, oh, I'm going to go talk to Gary. That was fun. But it's just interesting to notice these like flows of life and uh, and then trying to be like, okay, let me just enjoy what's happening today versus like going back to that stuff or regretting stuff or I don't know. I, I guess I've just been like thinking a lot about that this year about be here now. I'm like, I finally got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's super valuable and super useful. And um, I think for me, it's one of those weird things because from the outside, a lot of people think I'm like really, really zen. And then the people who are really close to me are like, you need to meditate. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting. Why do people perceive you as that outside? Oh, outside? I think, you know, I try to go for like really chill vibes on my YouTube channel. And, you know, the Twitter thing is definitely, you know, the more I do it and the more followers you get on Twitter, the more and more uh, your tweets start resembling fortune cookies. And that's definitely happened to me as well. But, you know, the algorithm really incentivizes that, right? It's uh, you, you, you tweet all kinds of things and then the things that really blow up are sort of the fortune cookie <laughs> trite things. So, you know, and these things are about engagement. So it is kind of funny. Whereas when people really get to know me, they're like, oh yeah, you're just a really normal human being. <laughs> you know, I have crazy anxiety about things that could go wrong. And I have things in my past that I'm not proud of or 
things that happen to me that I'm not happy happen to me, right? And so, and that's true for every single person on this planet. And so that's one of the interesting things that I think these parasocial relationships on the internet that we end up having sort of cloud all of that. I remember, yeah, I'm meeting some of the heroes that I looked up to. And on the one hand, it was like really awesome to work for them and spend time with them. And then it's actually sort of a relief. Like, you know, you put people on the internet who are really famous, who maybe help you with wisdom or knowledge or whatever on this pedestal. And then it's actually kind of cool to realize, oh, they're actually also people and I'm also a person and we're not different. And then that's the empowering aspect to it, right? Do you have that with, uh, you know, meeting people on the internet or people who you just knew from afar? I like your word parasocial. It's definitely interesting that people have this, they have some information about you. I went biking on Sunday and there's these guys, they're really skinny and they've got really nice bikes and they dress so well. And I just assume they're better than me. I'm like, oh, you guys are, you look like a little Italian cyclist is what look like. Did you beat them? <laughs> uh, no, they were really, I kicked my ass. They're really fast, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but it was conceptually, I have to remind myself, I don't always want to put everyone above me. Yeah. And I think that's easy to do. You're like, hey, Peter Thiel or Elon, he must, he's the only one that can do that stuff. Which, there is truth to that, but it's also, I do think of that Jobs quote from that time where it's like, when you realize no one's better than you, I'm mashing it. I think about that where like, they're not better than you just because they dress better. And I like reminding myself of that. Yeah. And then it sort of works both ways because it's like, don't believe you're in press line, right? The second that happens, Ooh. like... You fall off. <laughs> when I get anxious about that, I'm like, I get anxious about the corrupting aspect of power, honestly. If people start developing really big egos, they start expecting to be treated different, or maybe they start believing they're actually better than other people. And uh, a lot of badness in organizations and in life sort of comes out of exactly that type of behavior. I just realized, you know, you know, Noah, I mean, you and I have been in startup world, like business world, like hiring people and, you know, just allocating capital and resources and like trying to help people with their businesses for a really, really long time. And so what you and I would take as totally for granted, it's not. It's just not in people's brains. And I think that that's actually the useful part of YouTube is that there's definitely entertainment. And if I can sprinkle in like just enough entertainment and just enough wonder into education, then that means more people who could be like us will be like us. And then that's probably the best possible thing for humanity because it's like, I, I'm still at the end of the day, like I'm a capitalist, <laughs> you know, like I believe if you make a business or product or service that is better for other people, that's positive sum. And then it's especially tough right now in like politics. You're just looking at this stuff and it's like people literally believing that um, it's not possible to make the world a better place through capitalism. So I don't know. It's a very fraught time to be a capitalist. And so I do think that the best thing we can do is try to help. And so all of the things that we take for granted that we use to like evaluate people the second we meet them, like the least we can do is actually leave behind breadcrumbs that help them up, right? It's like, don't blow yourself up on like thinking about the world in this way. Don't blow yourself up by spending 10 years on a product or startup idea that's just not, it can't get there. And then here's how to think about it. Here's how to evaluate it. Here's what you should be doing right now. Like learn this, meet this person, right? Yeah. 
I mean, that's what you do, right? With yeah. you know, teaching people how to na navigate what's going on on the internet, right? Yeah. Thought I've had over like doing this content is my friend and I have talked about like, it's not how many viewers necessarily, but it could be the next Elon Musk, the next Gary Tan, the next Max Levchin could be watching these shows and be like, oh, I'm going to go do something about it because of this inspiration. <laughs> that you mentioned me by next to those names is very, very strange to me. <laughs> well, I, I, I definitely want to talk about your journey, but it, it was almost, it was a little sad last night. I was having dinner at True Food up in Austin and this guy who I've known for years, he's like, I just spent six years on my startup and we're basically still breaking even and I don't ever see it getting bigger. And all of my friends like you and others are now rich and I feel like I just wasted my life. And I was like, bro, you did not watch my YouTube channel, did you? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Okay, bad joke, bad joke. But I, I felt bad. I, I don't know. I, I guess I was curious the kind of messages you get and I guess what would, advice would you have for him? I guess the first part is actually just like, hey, you know, even getting to a profitable business is you're already like top 10% of the people who try, you know, nine out of 10 people try and like never make it to even break even. So one is count your blessings. And then two is it is really, really hard to be like on a six year slog. And then at that point, it's like, what's the space? What's the market? And like, are there people in that space who are doing interesting things? Maybe tack that way, right? It's always better to be more original, but on the other hand, sometimes great artists steal, right? There's an edge to every business. And because of the internet, it's a double-edged sword, right? When you figure out something, someone else can figure that out really quickly if they're paying attention. But that can be a benefit. And you know, that's something that other people, that, you know, your friend can take advantage of too. What's the edge in the business? Who's doing interesting stuff? And it's maybe first copy, but then innovate, right? It's synthesis. There are no original ideas, really. It's just synthesis. And then the version that he or she does like, might actually be way better, right? And then for a six-year thing, it probably means like there hasn't been enough new stuff. And so part of it is like, open up the mind. Do the unexpected, right? Like take some piece, 10% of the profits, you know, invest in something new, something different. What is the frontier? But you know, not knowing what the market is, like, it's tough to know. He was doing HR software. Something in that space. Yeah. I thought one thing you said in your video around billion dollar ideas that I loved was Microsoft came around after the uh, Altair, the MITS computer Altair was available. And it was like yeah. literally that sparked the Microsoft trillion dollar business. And it was a toy. I mean, that it was like not something that could do anything real yet. But the sheer fact that um, people who are into computers are like, this is it. Yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, you know, what is the Altair? What is the first version that's sort of a toy that people don't pay attention to? I think at least the way I heard your point, which I loved, was that, and, and this is where I thought that maybe it was a disconnect with my friend, was the timing was there, like the computer came at that time, which worked, but also they were excited to work on computers. Like they were doing computers yeah. their whole childhood when it was available, and now there's another level of it. And it's like, is this something that you really want to spend the next five years on, whether it makes a lot of money or not? Yeah, totally. The only other thing that I think is very interesting, I just had Amy Jo Kim on the show or on my channel that's coming in, I don't know, a few weeks. And she has a process called game thinking that is really about slicing down your user base down to like the smallest possible set of users and then just really making them happy. So that's actually a really common situation. Like, especially in DMs, I get people who are like, we're gonna make a group messaging app. 
And I'm like, well, doesn't that already exist? So, you know, WhatsApp, Telegram, there's so many. And then they're like, no, no, like what's special about it is like, I'm making it. And it's like, whoa, whoa, dude, like that's probably not the, that your mom will agree with you. And like, you know, frankly, I agree with you. You are a very special, unique snowflake. On the other hand, like when you're talking about users, users will not care. They still care. Like, why should I use it? Like, you know, this is the biggest network effects business there is, right? And so that's where this like slicing idea, I think, is very interesting. And Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, talks about this when he created Gmail. He was like, we could have launched it to a billion people in like a second. But instead of doing that, he wanted a hundred people, then a thousand people inside Google to absolutely love it. And only once the product was there, did they actually release it wide. So there's this aspect of you're doing this thing here's this audience. And then is there like a smaller audience that you can make love you just by like customizing it, making it 10 times better just for them? You know, at Y Combinator, we would always talk about that as like the thin edge of the wedge. So, you know, not knowing where in HR, it's like hard to know, but an example of that would be what are the highest growth parts of HR? One of my favorite exercises when like talking with founders is like giving them the bad version of it, which is like, this might be a bad idea, but the good idea will look like this. You know, so take influencers, right? Like influencers are starting to build their first teams. Like I'm hiring my first team. Like I was doing all my YouTube, like totally alone with my chief of staff and that was it. And now I'm like, I hired a producer and an editor and like the first team to like start working on the YouTube channel. And could you make an HR solution just about that? And that allows you to hyper-target for just people who fit that mold. And then when you reach out to them, that's something that I would at least take a look at because I'm like, oh, that person is making a thing just for me. <laughs> you know, rather than try to shoehorn some other HR thing that's just like, whatever, I'd probably just Google and be like, best HR solution. But if I found something that was like, best HR solution for someone building a YouTube team for the first time, that's the bad version of it because it's probably not a big enough market, but that is the shape of something that could work. One, uh, I love where you're going with it. I think also there's going to be a lot more teams and professionalism around content creation. Like, I think it's definitely started. You made me reflect on like Andrew Chen, a good friend of both of ours. I, I was like, Gary's like Andrew Chen if he had a family. <laughs> well, Andrew Chen now has a really nice RV. So it's, you know, similar to having a family. Well, he's got the RV. He's in a van. Yeah. Uh, but it made yeah, me reflect. Yeah. Before YouTube came out, Andrew and I built a site called Fattcast. You know, in the similar parallel to what you're talking about, it was a YouTube site, but based on BitTorrent. So to actually watch the videos, you had to download a client. And then to upload it, you had to be online so that the client could actually transfer the files. But the idea of being able to watch these videos online was, it was Andrew's vision, which was amazing. It was yeah. six months, a little early. And then the technology was a little off. But to the yeah. same point with, I think, if you like video online, but the technology is not working, okay, well, the video stuff is cool, but this tech isn't working. What can we shift it to? Yeah, totally. So we missed the boat. It's funny because that kind of idea could still work now because people hate YouTube. And then at that point, it's just network effects. And where do you say people hate YouTube? No, I mean, with YouTube, one of the earliest problems with YouTube was that they just had to keep raising so much money just to keep the server. Like, it's expensive. That's an interesting version of a toy that was like solved by VC dollars. And then they ended up having to sell, I think. Wasn't that true? Oh, interesting. Really? I don't have inside info there. Like that was my perception. It might be totally wrong. But early on, like you had to spend an outrageous amount of money in order to actually give away free hosted videos. 
I was still blown away. It's hosted videos that they pay me ad money for and they bring us an audience. I think YouTube is like one of the, the greatest business platforms ever. But I think the thing is I've gotten, like we're same age. I'm, I think you're 39. Mm-hmm. I'm 38. Yeah, yeah, 39, yeah. Yeah, dude, same. Uh, and we're, also, we're both from the Bay. What blows my mind is how do I not disregard something? So like Triller, I was watching, did you, you know, Mike Tyson had a, had a big fight this week or last weekend and Triller, this new app sponsored it. And, you know, as I get older, I'm like, ah, it's another TikTok thing. I don't need to, I don't want to go dance in front of videos. And so I've wondered, especially in my 30s, like, how do I not disregard the toys like YouTubes or the TikToks or Triller or, you know, and Clubhouse, uh, things like that. Yeah, totally. I guess how would you approach that or thought about it? I mean, consumer is kind of crazy that way. I mean, even Snapchat was a great example of that, right? We were too old to understand it <laughs> when it first came out. Who ended up doing it? I think it was Benchmark that did the Series A, right? I thought it was Jeremy Liu, but I couldn't oh, be wrong. Oh, it was Jeremy, yeah. Either way, it was... The story there was, I, I think, that Jeremy looked at the cohorts and then believed the data. And it's like, I might not understand it, but I do believe the, the retention cohorts. And then that ended up being right. Yeah, it's funny. I, just, I don't really use any of it now, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, kids still use Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, they still use that. I also thought of the flip side of that. There's all these like enterprise companies like Snowflake and some of these ones that are multi-billion dollar companies. And I'm like, I've never heard of any. I don't know anyone who's ever used this software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like on the enterprise side of it. I guess it's like we know our lanes really well. So maybe being open-minded as well, just more around that too. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the weird frontiers for investing period. In the end, it's the more diverse the investors are, the more diverse the companies can be. What do you mean? I mean, these are examples of Snapchat was like a pure software company, but because like a lot of investors didn't understand this nascent moment when smartphones became omnipresent for basically kids, a lot of people missed it exactly because of that. They were like, you know, here's my world. Here's what I understand. And this is like a thing that doesn't fit in that. Or like you take the media narrative. The media narrative, I think, around it was like, oh, it's a sexting app. <laughs> oh my God, that's so interesting. Because that's so yeah. true. But then you made me think about OnlyFans. You know about OnlyFans, right? Yeah, obviously. OnlyFans is super interesting thing that's happening. But as you said it, what, is, what does everyone call OnlyFans? Yeah. A porn site. Yeah, it's a porn site. Yeah, that's what people say. But on the other hand, it's, it's like a new type of transaction, right? And it's what people want. And you know, OnlyFans behavior, I think, had been happening on the internet for a while. It's I actually sort of wonder if there's some aspect of, and I haven't researched the founders very much, but I wonder if there's some aspect of, finally, there was someone who was a good enough product and engineering sort of team that there's just a, a level up in terms of the capabilities of that team building that product. Then they rolled it up. Yeah. I think he wasn't porn before, but you commented on one of your videos I loved. It was about you do these experiences in life that lead you to the great idea or lead you to incorporate that into your business. But it's like if you're not trying to go and explore and experience, you're quoting Steve Jobs. And I was like, oh, I like that. Like you have to go out and have these turns and then you can incorporate them in different ways to whatever you're working on. Well, it's something that I saw at Y Combinator all the time. The coolest startups, the founders are so different and had crazy, super interesting experiences, sometimes ones that are nearly heroic. The founders of Equipment Share, which is now, I think, a billion dollar startup, sort of like Airbnb, but for heavy machinery, okay. they escaped a cult. And so I think they're brothers and they, the story was really amazing, actually. And 
So you get to meet lots of really outlier type people at places like Y Combinator, but then you know, YC also lets in the very conventional now, right? There was some point when the social network came out, the movie, it was like flipping a switch. You know, we would always still get the sort of standard off the beaten path, like found Paul Graham's essays off of the internet sort of people who were like fringe and interesting. And I think this is sort of like a little bit the eternal September of startup dumb, because then we started getting the bankers, (laughs) you know, like the perfect, resume, like the, you know, ex-Facebook, ex-Google, ex-IV. These people in the past became management consultants and investment bankers. Sometime around 2012, they started becoming startup founders because it was cool and interesting and all desires mimetic. And so the interesting thing was like, sometimes they had never failed in their lives and like startup will teach you failure. Like no plan. It's like getting into the ring and getting punched in the face for the first time. But the cool thing is like, you know, some of them, they rolled with it. They're like, oh, people don't like that. I'll try five other things. And they still succeed. But the interesting thing was how common it was for people who had never failed in their entire lives. You know, some mix of privilege, but also, frankly, just everything was rolled out on a silver gold platter for them, right? It's like always the top school, the boarding schools, like the golden resume. And then they would hit a startup problem and then they like, they would cry in office hours. It was like sort of shocked at that actually. So yeah, it was interesting. (laughs) It is very important to have a lot more fringe diversity in startup founders. And so I think that that's something that investors can probably honestly do better at, right? Like here's this capitalist system that like allocates capital to people who come from standard sort of central casting. And yet some of the most interesting, the weirdest and the best startups come from people who they're just very different. Well, like the Patreon guy, now billion dollar company was a musician. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess I'm curious through Y Combinator as well as through Initialized Capital, what have been some of the ideas and the pitches early on and the founders that have become that, you know, rapidly grew? I'm curious what those experiences were like, their stories, meeting those people. I mean, the other interesting thing is like how accidental some of these things were. The Soylent story is kind of hilarious. I mean, Rob Reinhardt and Matt Cobble, they were working on a totally different startup. They were working on networking hardware. And then Rob created an online subreddit and community for this very, very fringe thing, which was he was sick of eating ramen and pizza. And he thought, well, what if I could just make meals from a can, from from literally powder? (laughs) And he named it Soylent, and it grew and grew and grew as a following. And then I remember them coming in for office hours and saying like, hey, we want to turn this into our startup now. And I was like, okay, but one thing you cannot do is you cannot call it Soylent. But they ignored me, which is good. I mean, good founders like ignore bad advice. Like in the end, naming it that actually got them probably tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars worth of free earned media. I mean, it was totally free. Like people were pissed, right? Like anyone who's into organic food or they just inflected into it. And so it's an interesting counter case study to me. That was a very good example of like, I gave horrible advice (laughs) and I'm glad they didn't take my advice because they knew something that I didn't understand at the time, but now I understand. It's like good or bad, every business is a meme now. You know, nine out of 10 people heard about Soylent and they hated it, but all that it really mattered was you could get your like one out of 10 people who heard about it and they were like, oh, I want that. And then they became subscribers and, you know, true believers. 
So that's probably like the most extreme story of finding product market fit, literally by choosing like an incendiary name that would force people to talk about it. Honestly, it's super fascinating. I guess I was curious, any other billion you know, dollar ideas? You've been in on some of these early ones. So like maybe like Instacart and Coinbase, like you were some really early in that stuff. Yeah, Instacart was fun in that that was more a Porva never gave up. He emailed all the YC partners and I was the only one to reply. And YC was half over. It was only a 10-week program. So I said, it's half over. You should apply to the next one. It'd be almost impossible to get you in. And then he said, he like zeroed in on almost. And then he sent me a six pack of beer using the service that he had. And it was up and running in, in uh, Mountain View. And the funny thing was, it was actually a really sort of common startup idea at that moment. Like Lyft had just um, been created. It was called, I think, Zimride at the time, you know, Uber had just like started launching UberX. So this idea of totally online workforce was a brand new idea. The thing that really stood out to me was Apurva had actually built it. You know, everyone has the idea, but if you build both the driver app and the retail app and it's all ready to go and he hired two people off of Craigslist to do it and I was one of the first hundred people to try and download the app. I downloaded it and it was like, you could scroll it very smoothly. And I was like, this person isn't a talker. They're a doer. <laughs> they literally have it. So it's like, it doesn't matter. YC is half over. Like this is a intelligence test and I hope we pass. And I was like, we're bringing him in tomorrow. And then they got in and pretty clearly the best company in that YC batch, maybe the whole year. And YC funds a lot of really good companies and knock on wood, I mean, 17 and a half billion dollar company at this point and available to 80% of people in the United States now, which is really crazy in a matter of eight years. Almost. Yeah. Damn. That's uh... so. Don't, yeah. Don't take no from an investor, I guess. And then, you know, on my end, I love people who they go above and beyond. Right. I think that a Porvo is actually probably thinking about exactly that. He probably had a sense that there were other people trying to do this idea. And that's actually an interesting mental framework. It's like, go out, find the URLs and find the people who are literally doing all the things that you're trying to do, and then make a mental catalog of all the things they're doing, and then go above and beyond so that it's clear, like, you know, yes, it's a crowded space, but this is going to be the one. Yeah, I really liked your message that he showed it. He did it. He wasn't, hey, I want to start this thing. And or, you know, I'm sure you get emails like, hey, Gary, I'd like to help you do this thing versus, you know, on your YouTube, I want to help you versus like, hey, I did this for you already. Let me show you. Yeah, totally. Wow, that's awesome. And what was the uh, Coinbase? Yeah, Coinbase was pretty interesting because this is a good example of someone who walked away from basically guaranteed money. I mean, Airbnb in 2011, pretty sure it's going to be at that point, it had just hit a billion dollars valuation. So everyone knew, I think Airbnb hitting a billion dollar valuation would actually put Y Combinator on the map in 2011. So one, you're lucky, two, you're good. Before that, it was only Dropbox. But I think the, the consensus among Silicon Valley investors at the time was, you know, that's a really good one, but any incubator could get one. And once Airbnb happened, it was, oh, there's going to be a whole bunch of them. Brian was working at that company, head of anti-fraud. Anti and it was interesting because he saw how hard it was for Airbnb to do even basic things, right? Like when you're that early with the online marketplace, it's like opening a bank account was insane back then, right? 
let alone like fighting fraud and things like that. And he basically got infected by, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. He read it and he, he walked away from basically the guaranteed place to be to work on something that was so fringe that people were afraid to use their real names when they created services for it, right? Like, you know, Mt. Gox. You know, this was the land of like pseudonym, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. <laughs> so, and I remember buying Bitcoin on, on that and it was, you know, I had to wire money to some country that I'd never wired money to and it felt really scammy. And by magic, you know, the money for my first Bitcoin showed up in this like, trading card website in Japan, and I bought my first Bitcoin. And uh, it was terrible and scary, but I wanted to see what it was about. And then here was Brian again, he made the website, you could put a credit card in, and you could buy a Bitcoin just entering things off the website. You didn't have to go to Western Union and wire anything. It wasn't weird. He put his name on the homepage. You know, he made it look like a bank. And that was exactly what crypto actually needed at that moment. But yeah, it was interesting to see that because that's a great example of something that's incredibly fringe that frankly people thought was a joke. I mean, it became what we hope is actually software eating money. It sort of took like great builder, great engineer to like take a step back and actually devote their lives to it. Like take a lot of risk, you know, like that was a guaranteed payday as close as it could be in Silicon Valley. And he said, that's not important. What's more important is like, helping usher in this new type of finance that could exist. This is inevitable. I mean, because Airbnb 2011, he'd be worth nine figures. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd be surprised if not that. And then when he came to you guys, because he came to YC, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he applied and he got in and you know he didn't know much about starting a company. And then honestly, like I think a lot of it is the YC community at that point. It was like having you know, a hundred other founders who were all really, really good alongside you. Like that's a community that's extremely powerful. Top 1% of like the set of people who wanted to start a company at that time, you put them in a room twice a year. That's why YC works. And it's like, how does everyone else get that advantage if we're not in YC? I mean, apply to YC. Yeah, I guess so, you know, but I think there are lots of incubators now that are increasingly good, you know, but yeah, you know, I think the gold standard is still Y Combinator, honestly. But I'm a little biased. Like I spent five years working there and just got to see how the sausage was made. And it made me, honestly. Well, your career was fascinating with it. I noticed your career was, went to college, did the big corporate stuff, then startup. Then you did like big fund and then your fund. It's like you went, you know, Microsoft and Palantir. Then you went YC and then initialized. I was like, he should probably go intern for like Casey Neistat, which I guess is what inspired <laughs> And then, then run your YouTube channel, which is, I guess, Yeah, I met Casey Neistat, and uh, I knew him. I mean, he's a super charismatic guy in person, obviously, but what really did it for me was realizing we had some 20-year-old interns in the office, and they walked up to him and just started talking to him like they had known each other for, like, 20 years. <laughs> and so, but that was probably true. Like, they were, you know, growing up with Casey Neistat watching his videos. So I thought that was really interesting. And then, you know, the way it works today is like, again, every business is a meme and having a super direct connection to people and trying to influence them that way, it's worth it. You know, like if I can actually help more people in their journeys, then that's what I should be doing. Just like Paul Graham's essays, like got me to quit my job at 
Palantir and think about starting a company. And then I applied to YC and got in. And then, you know, we built a top 200 website, probably had a shot at being top 10, but we didn't quite do it right. But the funny thing about Silicon Valley is like, you can screw up and it'll still pay out. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, every, every time in my career, I've basically didn't quite make it to uh, the moon, but I ended up among the stars. Like I learned a lot. And at this point, it's just how do we help this magic thing happen, you know, 10 or 100,000 times more? What are some of the ideas that have been like the fastest to success that you've seen that have come into YC or come into Initialize? And then what do you think are the ones that haven't had that traction? You said an amazing quote. I loved it. You quoted, um, it's not about the surfboard, it's about the wave. Yeah, it's not the surfer. Yeah. Well, it's both, but... And this is yeah, tricky yeah. <laughs> for me, right? Like I want to believe that it's about the founder alone. And then while that is true, the founder needs to use their brain and survey the waves and figure out which one to get on. And so the canonical example is like Twitter, everything that could have gone wrong felt like, you know, from the outside, it sounded like some form of the wrongness happened at Twitter. But that wave was so big and so right and what society needed that it didn't matter. And then there are lots of other cases, some of these people who have like golden resumes who have never failed in their lives and they pick a wave that like isn't there and like they fall off right away because there's no wave. There's not a market. People don't need it. People don't want it. So as a former writer in a way, like I wanted to believe like, oh, it's about the primacy of the individual and that person will figure it out no matter what. But that ignores the fact that we are just individuals on this great, great sea, and you got to pick the right wave. Like the world is going to go in a certain way, like thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of people, billions of people want X, Y, or Z. And if you can deliver it to them, like that's how you get a billion users, right? It's not about you. It's like any given one of us is just like a single human being who could sit there in front of a computer, right? It's the combination of like making software or, you know, hardware or coming up with some sort of, you know, technological breakthrough or social breakthrough or design breakthrough or product breakthrough or business breakthrough, any of those things, the financial breakthrough, right? Sometimes it's like financial engineering, right? Like all of those things are equal to me. And then if you pick the right sort of seam to hit, like what do other people want, right? Then you can make a thing for a billion people. And that's how people become billionaires, right? What have you invested in recently that you can share that you you're like i can see that this is a big wave or this person moving into a big wave oh yeah i think my favorite one right now is a shelf engine so we preceded it um friends of my friends from microsoft way back in the day so one of them started a sandwich brand that got to like five million dollars a year in revenue sandwiches like, and then like sandwiches sand like literally like sandwiches yeah like, oh. you know sold in like dozens of delis in seattle at the time and then one of our other friends he was a Microsoft engineer, and then the CEO, Stefan Kalb, he uh, got his friend, B. Jordan, to write a ordering software that was optimized, and it, it basically made the $5 million a year sandwich brand an extra million dollars by preventing food waste. And then I funded it. <laughs> and then now they're doing it at like a 100x scale for the world's biggest groceries. So, you know, Kroger, Walmart, they're actually... Groceries in LA are apparently a few percentage points cheaper because of Shelf Engine right now. And they're, you know, they went from zero to, I think, four or 500 stores this year, and they're about to roll out to a few thousand. 
So, and 30% of perishable food goes in the garbage. No one eats it. It's just waste. And that's carbon footprint. And it's um, a problem that like easily is solved with software. So that's a good example of like, I know you asked what are the fastest. This company took like four years to get here. And we always talk about, honestly, most startups are like sort of the 10 year overnight success. And um, you got to grind for 10 years, five, 10 years, like you know, things not working. You feel like you're going to die. It's, you know, the company's going to die. You have to lay everyone off. Like this is sort of the, you know, to quote Elon Musk, like the eating glass and staring into the abyss part of being a founder. And so while everyone can sort of, you know, look at the pedestal and they're like, look, like they did it. I want that. Right. What they miss is like, there's just like so much stuff of like, it doesn't work and we're going to die. And I'm going to lose all my money and I'm going to lose all my investor money. And my parents put money into this or whatever it is, you know, it's like my, you know, my friends put money into this or I'm going to lose everything. There's sort of like that moment for like 10 years. And then at some point, like a few things break and then it's like, oh, it's working product market fit. When we look at YouTube or we watch, we read like the press, it's like you see it only at the pedestal stage and you think like, oh, I just want that. Let's skip to that. But no, no, there's like so much stuff that happened before that to even get there. Yeah. You mentioned as well, long duration wins. So finding this large market that's growing or, or sizable and then sticking with it for a, a very long period of time, like you said. I like how long you're going to do YouTube for. You're like, I'm going to do it forever. Yeah, uh, I want to do it for the rest of my life. I mean, as long as it's fun and hard and valuable and as long as it's interesting, then it's worth doing. I was thinking about, I biked to this weekend and it's, it was the longest ride I've ever done. And it really dawned on me. It was, the only reason it's satisfying is because it's challenging. Yeah, that's true. That's what we're here for, right? If it was too easy, then it's like playing video games with cheat codes. Like sooner or later, it's not fun anymore. Whenever I want to stop playing a game, I just start like looking up the cheat codes and then it like snaps me right out of like whatever I was addicted to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it has got to be hard. You want it to be hard. So I think hard and I would say fulfilling or hard and rewarding. Yeah. Rewarding is important too. Noah, thank you for having me, man. Dude, awesome. You're the man. We'll do this again. All right, man. Thanks, Gary. Take care, guys. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. Go subscribe to Gary at youtube.com slash Gary Tan. And check out his venture fund, Initialized Capital. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go have a barbecue together. Uh, before you go, tweet at me, at Noah Kagan, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, remember to go subscribe to my newsletter. If you're not on my newsletter, we put out exclusive content in a single short email each week. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. And by the way, if you don't have your own newsletter, go to sendfox.com and create your own too. It's free. Finally, a couple of shout outs to our team. It is Jason at podcasttech.com for doing all these episodes. David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork team for everything that they do. And a final special shout out to Colin Brewer. I miss you, dog. I hope you're having fun in South Texas. Have a nice day. What's your favorite day of the week?